0: In constant sorrow all through his day. I am a man of constant sorrow. I've seen trouble all my day. He's seen trouble all through his day. For six long years I've been around that. A treasure
1: here on earth I found. One
0: evening, as the sun went down and the jungle fire was burning, on a track came a hobo hiking. And he said, boys, I'm not yearning. I'm headed for a land that's far away, beside the crystal fountain. Oh, come with me, we'll go and see. The Big Rock Candy Mountain, in the Big Rock Candy Mountain, all the cops have wooden legs, all the bulldogs all have rubber teeth, and the hens lay soft boiled eggs. Farmers' trees are full of fruit, and the barns are full of hay. I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the rain don't fall, the wind don't blow, in the Big Rock Candy Mountain, in the Big Rock Candy Mountain, you never change your socks. And the little streams of alcohol come a trickling down the rocks. There ain't no short-handled shovels, no axes, barns, or picks. I'm going to stay where they sleep all day, where they hung the jerk who invented work on the Big Rock Candy Mountain. In the Big Rock Candy Mountain, the jails are made of tin, and you can walk right out again as soon as you are in. Rakemen have to tip their hats and the railroad bulls aren't blind. There's a lake with stew and whiskey too. You can paddle all around it in a big canoe in the big rock candy mountain.
2: That song is uh, famously was used by hobos to lure young men into their hobo gangs during the depression. And uh, it does speak to the dream of uh, post-scarcity that has uh, motivated people to participate in the social project since it existed. Uh, we essentially were robbed of something, and then we've, been, we've spent millennia now trying to regain it, uh, but every effort we expend to do it ends up only furthering the power of those who have withheld it from us because of their ritual power, I'm going to say it, their magical power because the rule of elites is predicated on ritual control of uh reality the ability to make reality as you as a group of people want through manipulations of uh symbols and that was that ritual power was supernatural when it was connected to a notion of a supernatural god or gods but now when technology has become sufficiently advanced that it is, as Arthur C. Clarke said, uh, indistinguishable from magic. People see that quote, the Arthur C. Clarke quote about how sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I think a lot of them imagine, well, you're talking about technology in the future. No, 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 no. The Industrial Revolution universalized a process where technology is magical. Like in the sense of people who would have lived in a social context where magic is real, would have seen it as magic. So it takes the place of magic in a society where that desire does not go anywhere. It just gets transformed. And now we have a group of rulers who think they're in charge, but are essentially along for the ride of an algorithm that needs people at every point of a circulation of uh, of capital. They need people to to stand as Circuit completers, you know, like you need for for electricity to operate, you need these circuits to be completed, right? Like you need a switch to be thrown to connect two pieces of uh, metal to conduct the electricity. Capitalism requires human conductors, at least for now, it does. And capitalism is always seeking human conductors, and all those conductors think that they're operating on their own best interests. They think they're operating for themselves, and the higher up they are the more they're able to believe that they actually are. Because what they want and what the machine wants are the same at a certain point. And at that point of conflict, you only really feel it at the bottom, which is why the people at the bottom have the least influence over how the machine operates. Because their alienation is complete. At the very top, you might not like the direction the country is going if you're a mega billionaire, for example. But that's just a political alienation. That's just... That's just something that could be diffused into a culture war. Because your material interests and the interest of scraping the planet for its last bit of surplus value are the same because it keeps you in the style that the system has made you accustomed to and that you are addicted to, because it for you constitutes the good. So, how we get here, this is the whole book. That's the whole reason. They say it's not about inequality, whatever, but this is a book about how we get to a system where uh, the symbols of power are not socially defined by a social unit. They are occultly defined by a segment within a greater cultural unit, because... Uh, conflict in like systems of thought between cultures is meaningless because eventually they're going to come to fight, and one's going to beat the other, and then one's going to subjugate the other, and then that other stays outside. It might be it might obey. This is an This is how empires are formed. You might obey, but you obey because if you don't, you will be actually punished in the here and now you're not worried about some sort of cosmic retribution you're not worried that you're violating god's law by being alienated from a power structure that has oppressed you and uh, and conquered you but within a system there's not that alienation even among people at the bottom and, and if it becomes too powerful if it becomes too much at the bottom you have class kite you have um crisis emerge at the political level This is why all societies based on classes eventually collapse under their own contradictions because you have this essential alienation between the bottom and the top
1: towards the ritual symbols of the social order, what they mean. And this process begins
2: once rule by sect, rule by elites, basically, becomes uh, universalized, or at least gains a center of gravity among all the different various types of human organization that GrabGrow have. I'm pretty convinced. uh, I don't know anything about anthropology, really, or archaeology, but they tell a good yarn. And honestly, if the chat knows more, please tell me where they're wrong. Uh, I think that I don't buy their argument that there was not primitive... Egalitarianism, because by their own admission, they only start talking about human history thirty thousand years ago, when you have humans arising two hundred thousand years ago. In that gap, I think there was a social, there was a materially enforced egalitarianism. Uh, they disagree. I don't think that they're correct on that, but I think their argument that once you get to a record that can be looked at, you see a much more fluid play between modes of production and social orders than we would imagine or at least as uh like the clichés of uh human civilizational narratives go but somewhere along the line hierarchical social orders that are able to hoard enough surplus and distribute it efficiently enough to build sta- like military forces that are capable of exerting power outside of a social structure and dominating consistently those outside of it and suborning them to their uh, cultural project and therefore uh, sublimating a lot of the intraclass conflict within the social order between commoners and elites. That model then becomes uh, evolutionarily dominant over all of its competitors and eventually overwhelms them. And then what we see... From prehistory to or from uh, like the from antiquity to now throughout the historical era of humanity we see a cycle of modes of production coming into fluorescence uh, reaching a certain extent and then collapsing at all times the thing pushing them into collapse being class conflict now what might lead to crisis is usually ecological a social order that assumes a certain environment fails to have that environment and can't reform because that goes against the interests of those in charge of it and therefore collapses and is replaced by another form uh, of social domination with different, uh, 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 different structures created by different modes of production. Now, the traditional story says that the thing that led to this switch was agriculture. This is a, and this is, I think, a. This is one of those claims that Wing uh, Grab Grow make, where they say that they're overturning a uh, a commonplace of, uh, like. Uh, this is a commonplace of like folk pop anthropology, like when people of learning think about deeply, like you know our our question are are forced to confront questions of like development of of humanity. I think it is this case they are right that this is a truly uh widespread belief you encounter it put offhand by people in all kinds of positions uh and and um, among different intellectual specialties that uh agriculture is what leads to hierarchy this is part of Marx this is part of uh most uh modern retellings of humanity. Agriculture creates these structures. And this chapter, chapter six, Gardens of Adonis, the revolution that never happened, how Neolithic peoples avoided agriculture, makes an argument that no, there is nothing inevitable about agricultural uh, ways of life leading inexorably to stratified class societies. Because there is a huge chunk of time when humans engage in agriculture and no hierarchical dominant social structures emerged, And this is another claim they make where I can't really argue. I I don't know enough about the the broad literature to make a definitive uh, judgment of their claim here. But to me, they make a persuasive argument. And once again, if I'm wrong, please tell me that there is a huge chunk of time, about 3,000 years, when humans had agriculture, brought, like, like uh, agriculture had been adopted in significant ways uh, in the Fertile Crescent, the Fertile Crescent where it's often, uh, which is pointed to as the, the, the cradle of agricultural uh, uh, society, where they used agriculture in the Fertile Crescent, but did not create uh, societies around agriculture the way that we imagine them, with the th- sort of state structures that we associate with agriculture. Because this is really the argument that we all have in our head. Agriculture creates the state. And GrabGrow claims for about 3,000 years you had agriculture with no state. Now, again, tell me if this is correct or not. He's saying we got a, a huge chunk of time where humans in the Fertile Crescent are using, uh, are using agricultural techniques to... to uh, grow crops, they're domesticating crops, but those crops are not going through the sort of evolutionary uh, adaptation to domestication that you see uh, carried out experimentally and empirically. According to experiments, uh, it should only take about 200 years at most for people who are trying to do stratif- like uh, a productive agriculture, trying to apply efficiency to the question of agricultural production get the most calories out of X amount of land if they were doing that for 200 years they would have gotten certain evolutionary uh, changes within the uh within the grains instead you have a situation where there's three thousand fucking years where these crops even though they're being harvested by agriculturalists they are not being domesticated as though and and the grab grow argument is that this was not People being centrifugally pulled towards agriculture. This is people are uh, incorporating agriculture into their life ways uh, and self-consciously refusing to adapt it as the basis for their
1: uh, political economy. In fact, uh, the inc-
2: the uh, implication that Grabgro come uh, 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 evoke here, and that they underline at the end of the chapter (spoiler alert) is that not only did uh, people resist did utilize agriculture while resisting being domesticated by agriculture, while they domesticated uh, the crops uh, in order to maintain an ego- egalitarian social structure. That agriculture, instead of leading them inevitably towards class domination in the state, actually helped them maintain a system of classless uh, cooperation with equality, crucially, between the sexes as well.
1: So the big, uh, and I have to say, this has
2: been my favorite chapter so far of the book uh it, it 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 doesn't kind of ping pong between different things which is a little annoying in some of the other chapters it has like one case study at its heart but i feel like and and i and i felt like it was more uh persuasively uh challenging than previous ones but once again please tell me if those people who know anthro more or who know archaeology more what i'm not missing what i'm missing cuz obviously people have claimed and honestly every book with this sort of sweep is going to get this accusation that there's cherry picking of evidence, but I mean, what do you, if you're telling a narrative, you're cherry picking evidence by definition. Because there's going to be signal and noise, and you're deciding what signal and what is noise, and you're doing that through a heuristic that is established politically. And one of the things that is endearing about this book, as I said last week, is that they're upfront about that. We're replacing one just so story about, uh, human uh social evolution that is wrong and politically uh dangerous with another just so story of uh the origins of political of human social life but and might be wrong but is politically useful so what difference does it make and hey thumbs up i i appreciate that approach so much more than the Oh, the intellectual dark web tradition that is stultifying and and absolutely the STEM mindset that says that you can genuinely uh, approach questions from a uh, disinterested point. And the thing is, is that if you work in STEM, that isn't true. There are answers to these questions. They're collectively decided upon, though. And the thing that decides them is their practical application. By definition, these soft sciences that make up like our conversation about the world we live in and like understanding the world we live in cannot be tested that way. But you apply the same fantasy of removed uh, disinterest to a physical process to this intellectual one that is by definition politicized. And it makes, one of the things that makes conversation impossible and why all most political uh, content is absolutely dead because no one can acknowledge their priors. And of course, they get to feast on the fact that there are a lot of uh, soft-headed leftists who have decided that because of that fact, because of like human uh, investment in uh, understanding the world, the the lack of a neutral viewpoint, that there's no standards at all for anything. that there's no rigor. And that's not true either. It's just it's degrees. And 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 the con, and the uh ideological space is filled by people
1: who are su- super invested in these arguments because they refuse to see that. So in this chapter which I said I enjoyed very much, uh
2: Grabgro uh, describe uh early Fertile Crescent agriculture as essentially a feminine ritual play that existed to provide women with a place in the uh social uh order, a place for them to uh assert themselves. And assert their like creativity and and, uh, and ability to, to assert, you know to, to, to satisfy their animal spirits in a way that is equivalent to the hunting rituals of their male counterparts. because and, and the example that uh, Grabgro point to is a site in, uh, I believe uh, Turkey or uh, the, 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 the South or like northeast Syria called Hoyuk. I'm sure I pronounced this terribly. Should ask Hassan. Katalya Yohayek, and it's a big, um, it's a big complex of clay homes that are all about the same size, little cubes, if you will, without any central uh, places of uh, uh, elite. No elite quarters of larger uh, dwellings. No sacred dwellings either that seem to be different than others. Uh, But that inside all these homes, you had a collection of animal heads and hunting trophies. And you had a wall art all around the theme of hunting. Otherwise known as what the guys do uh, to sustain the community. Well, the women obviously weren't going out hunting. And they were contributing like vital stuff. But there is an essential asymmetry of power here. When your diet is just stuff that is hunted and gathered, then those who hunt and gather are going to accumulate social prestige over everyone else over time, unless you do something to counteract it. Like, for example, how in a lot of the uh, contemporary uh, uh, hunter-gatherer societies that still exist in the most inhospitable regions of Africa, where there is no no option of doing agriculture— Hunters are hunters and gatherers. The good ones are socially ridiculed and brought down in order to prevent them from getting a big head about it. Well, this solution that was allowed in the relatively fertile area, this fertile fucking crescent, where people kind of got to pick to live because there weren't that many people relative to how much land there was.
0: Uh,
2: this area on a floodplain that had access to rich game, but also had this uh, area that is systematically, uh, cyclically flooded by rivers and very fertile for uh, low-intensity agriculture. This gave women a way to contribute to like the calories of the community, which in a place of relatively low surplus accumulation is really the real currency of life. By broadening a diet to include agriculture... They're creating a more equitable and egalitarian social order, where women have their culture of farming and harvesting, men have theirs of hunting and gathering. And they have complementary art forms. As I said, the interiors of homes filled with hunting trophies and paintings of of, uh, men on the hunt. But the physical culture that was left at uh, Cattlehoyuk is almost exclusively artistic depictions of females. That are often called fertility goddesses. And Grabbro claimed, no, they weren't fertility uh, goddesses. They're more like Barbie dolls, probably. Uh, Or or, uh, aesthetic equivalents to the art on the walls of the men hunting. Symbols that tell the story of what the women do for the community. That tell women, that tell young girls how to be women. Which, a young boy growing into a hunting society, they look on the walls to see what they will be doing and what their values are going to be. That is their media for young girls, we're going to work in the field. Those totems uh, essentially initiate them into a world, and that creates a balanced dynamic between the genders. and Grabgirl claimed that this is very likely another case of sphygmogenesis like we saw in uh, the us west, the u s Canadian west coast where the Northwest uh, Indians have a, hundred, a fishing gatherer, s- rigidly stratified slave society, and the uh, money uh, utilizing California uh, Indians have uh, an egalitarian uh, society without slavery. Um, here we have this agriculturally uh, utilizing, this agriculture utilizing uh, gender egalitarian culture uh, in the floodplains of the river. And up in the uh, forests, you have foraging hunter-gatherer societies that don't do agriculture, and their uh, cultural remnants indicate uh, a profoundly patriarchal social structure, where all of the remaining uh, physical culture is uh, uh, about men, about hunting, about predatory beasts, and, most disturbingly, about the
1: detachment and disfigurement of human skulls. Human skull art. They have a house of skulls, and Grabrow will say that,
2: like, if you follow this cultural, uh, sim- this package of symbols outward in time throughout, like, Western history, you see how the association of noble houses and aristocrats with predatory animals becomes completely embedded over time, and Grabrow endorse uh and so that the so this is a society that does not have women in the fields, women providing calories women has staying home and doing vital domestic work, but not being in charge of who gets their stomach filled, and as a result their uh their uh their cultural symbol pa- symbolic package is patriarchal, and that is once again. A direct conflict with this uh, agricultural hunter-gatherer society next to it. Uh, an example once again of people seeing another way of life, seeing what's wrong with it, and subconsciously trying to prevent that from happening to them, and utilizing, in this case, agriculture to do so.
0: Uh,
2: and the the one of the things that they emphasize is that you might say, "Well, why would humans not want to get the most calories out of each piece parcel of land they have?" That doesn't make sense. Well, the more calories you get uh, to What is required, this is where the labor theory of value comes in, what is required to get maximum calories out of land is effort, is labor, is generally unpleasant physical labor, monotonous, hot, sweaty, physical labor, stuff that people aren't going to want to spend their time doing if they have other options, which as free people of the soil they do. So they're not going to domesticate their crops. They're not going to irrigate their crops. What they're going to do is they're going to notice that the land right next to them, where the floodplain is, is very uh, fertile. They're going to just spend a few hours a day putting some seeds in holes and then harvesting the food, which is enough to give them a varied diet. And again, contribute to this ritual uh, of uh, cultural production that uh, acclimatizes their children into their social order. Meanwhile, up in the northern forest. They're a bunch of hunter-gatherers cutting off everybody's heads, piling them up, skull piles, skull thrones, because the women are not part of the cultural conversation. They're not equalizing the cultural values and, and, uh, and coding what is good and bad, what is to be sought and what is to be avoided, which is how cultures reproduce themselves. Anyway, you slice it, at some point you have a, a healthy human social body that gets cancer, basically. And this book and others that talk about like the origin of civilization are really asking when does that cancer uh,
1: uh, emerge? When do you get? When does it? When does it hit you? You know. like
2: and and I think no matter who you look at it is whose uh, whose who's argument about it you you want to believe and grab grow have convinced me of this at least it is not going to come down at this point in human development to a uh exigency a natural exigency it's not going to come down to a change in environment or whatever because those Kind of crises can be accommodated, but at a certain point, someone makes the decision to detach community interest from self-interest, and then perpetuate that. Somebody said that's not right, and it's like okay, but that's how it feels to me anyway. And we'll t- we'll talk about it more as we read this book.
0: Uh, but
2: I one thing I agree with Grabgro about though is that. Before you reach like a terminal state of uh, of asymmetry, once the um, once the tumor turns malignant, basically, uh, and starts rampaging through the body, there is an, a, an equilibrium that is consciously created by a social order. Like it's not it's not just being tossed around by nature; it's being created. I agree with Grabgro about that. It's being forged. And the next chapter after this is going to start talking about how, all right, so if we accept this premise that rather than agriculture being the stepping stone to the state, uh, agriculture actually helped resist the uh, the accumulation of state power and the alienation of elites from uh, a social uh, body. Uh,
1: So if that's the case, and the agriculture isn't what did it, then what did
2: it? And they don't talk about that in this chapter. That's going to be next chapter. I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, because I said, I'm really interested in their argument here. Um, they basically endorse in broad strokes the argument of this uh, this anthropologist named Mariage Gimbusta, who apparently was a laughingstock for many years, but who argued that there was a Neolithic culture of like... Uh, Pastoralism and uh, or or like low level ar- agriculture uh, that was essentially dominated and overthrown by uh, steppe hunter gatherer societies patriarchal patriarchically organized
0: uh, and they
2: claim that at least in the evidence from this part of uh, you know the Fertile Crescent that you see the emergence of the archetypes that she broadly s- sketched. So we'll see more about where they locate the uh the turn. And I gotta say, if they're I think they're leading up to the argument that it's about it's about ritual, it's about the sacred, and I, I agree with them on that. So at the same time though, I know that there are fundamental like viewpoint uh incongruities between Grabgrow and I that I can see sort of in the chinks of some of these arguments and I can see kind of peeking through stuff that I otherwise totally agree with. And in this chapter, another reason it's one of my favorites, I got uh, the first real, like, solid glimpse into the center of the reactor, basically. Like, how I realized, oh, I see where I am different than him. I see why, even though I think he's, him and, I mean, I don't know Grabgro as well, but even though I think he's a brilliant theorist and, and thinker who was able to do the kind of like large scale uh synthesizing uh and production of narrative that I love more than anything and i I respond to the most and that I seek to do myself and that I really feel like I'm trying to kind of do with these vlogs uh but who I think fundamentally has uh has a different metaphysical metaphysics of of uh like human social uh, activity and reading the first 200 pages of this, it would sort of, you know, get under my boot heel a little bit, and there'd be a little princess of the pea, there'd be a couple, of like, claims that would kind of rankle me a little bit, but there's nothing that stood out as, like, emblemizing a real deep splinter. And uh, finally, in this chapter, one emerged, and I want to see if I can find it. It's when he's talking about uh, the way that we think of agriculture as like the materialist original sin. Like if we reject the idea of a uh, Christian original sin, that we are fallen, that we need a state to deal with our fallen selves and our inability to live as brothers. Um, but we still need to maintain the belief that humans are in that sense, irredeemable. Uh, we create a materialist, cos- a materialist, uh, uh, Theology basically that says we we uh, have been worshiping the God of uh agriculture and 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 capitalism now is just the evolution the uh, industrial uh version of that that like produ- producing calories producing surplus, which is what uh, domesticated agriculture is uh, has taken us over and so the bite of the apple becomes the planting of uh, the grain. And so there is this other pop notion that Grabrow, uh evoked that we didn't domesticate grain, grain domesticated us. That grain went from being a marginal uh, weed, and or grass rather, uh, into this thing that covers the planet by instrumentalizing humans to its reproduction. But... Uh, Grabgrow have a whole thing here where they uh reject that and I'm annoyingly having a hard time finding it. I hate going through the book. I should have I should have tagged this earlier. I'm an idiot. I'm sorry guys. Alright, I gotta go through this stupid thing.
0: This is great
2: I know this is great content. I'm sure you guys are you're riveted here, sorry.
0: <laughs>
1: Shit, this is death. I'm sorry, you guys. God damn it. Anybody know the like page I'm talking about? Fuck. Oh yeah, man. I think I found it. Damn it. Oh, here we go. Ah, here we go. Rejecting a Garden of Eden-type
2: narrative of the origins of farming also means rejecting, or at least questioning, the gendered assumptions lurking behind that narrative. Apart from being a story about the loss of primordial innocence, the Book of Genesis is also one one of history's most enduring charters for the hatred of women, rivaled only in the Western tradition by the prejudices of Greek authors like Hesiod, or for that matter, Plato. Uh... Book of Genesis, you're canceled. Hesiod, canceled. Plato, guess what? Mega canceled. It is Eve, after all, who proves too weak to resist the exhortations of the crafty serpent and is first to bite the forbidden fruit because she is the one who desires knowledge and wisdom. Her punishment, and that of all women following her, is to bear children in severe pain and live under the rule of her husband, whose own destiny is to subsist by the sweat of his brow. And here you might see the, the narrative of, you know, women trying to equalize uh, social relations by participating in, in calorie production in agriculture, being told, no, fuck you, this is men's work. Uh, when today's writers speculate about wheat domesticating humans as opposed to humans domesticating wheat, what they are really doing is replacing a question about concrete scientific human achievements with something rather more mystical. In this view, we're not asking questions about who might actually have been doing all the intellectual and practical work of manipulating wild plants, exploring their properties in different soils and water regimes, experimenting with harvesting techniques, accumulating obser- observations about the effects that all those that <clears throat> are, uh, accumulating observations about the effects these all have on growth, reproduction, and nutrition debating the social implications. Instead, we find ourselves laxing lyrical about the temptations of forbidden fruit and musing on the unforeseen consequences of adopting a technology, agriculture, that Jared Diamond has characterized, again, with biblical overtones as the worst mistake in the history of the human race. So here, he is saying, in no uncertain terms, humans are always in charge of everything. He is saying the anarchist
1: Uh, slogan. No gods, no masters, right? He is saying that humans are the ultimate arbiter.
2: And uh, I have to say, I think that is where I have to disagree with Grabgro. And not to say that, like, a, a specific god exists rather to say that the concept of God is inextricable from human social structures. That is what I'm saying. And that while he's describing, I think, a real evolution here and a a real loss of, of human agency that we gave up a long time ago, he imagines that that world was not also ruled over by gods, by God that it was instead made by man, self-consciously made by man. And I would say, no, it was not. I've spoke before about how social reality, fuck social reality, reality is structured as a dialogue, but not a dialogue between people, a dialogue between people and the natural world. But the, problem, but the thing about that dialogue is it has to be mediated. And the thing that mediates that trialogue is an alienated power that encompasses all of them, but is separate from them. There was a God in the decisions of the... There was God in the room when they made the decision to avoid agriculture. What happened is somebody took over God. Somebody hijacked God and remade it. Under, probably under conditions of ecological stress. See, somebody says it was the enchanted world. No, we are still in an enchanted world. There is still a God. There will always be a God. Anarchists want to overthrow God and replace him with themselves, individually, collectively. That's what we already have. The market exists to mediate that reality. We have to overthrow God, change God.
1: Change gods. Switch gods. And that, to me, is the fundamental fracture. Because anarchists think you can just change people's behavior
2: and that they'll just change everything. No. People's behavior will change because their understandings of what to pursue change understandings of what good and bad are and those all are always tacking off of a concept of god they're not inter- they they might be they might be uh, spoken of in an internal language but they can only be mo- uh, validated by reference to those around them and to this perspective all encompassing but separate perspective an anarchists think that that can be just overturned and left and that throne left vacant no has to be cre- recreated and so that i think is where all the tactical differ- disagreements come from because if you make these assumptions that that's how deep things have to change in order to signif- to like allow for not for the creation overnight of uh, utopia but for allow utopia to be a a, a livable reality And it has to for us to continue uh, investing our effort into a social project that might not be to our most narrow self interest. We have to surrender some of our idea of what our good is to a collective concept. And we have to create structures that reproduce that feeling. And anarchism is all about preventing that from ever happening. No, those are states, those are state forms. Those are domination regimes. No, they are the necessary symbolic, uh, symbolic and structural extensions of a collective belief that has to be
1: reinscribed daily and momently. Somebody says, "Was anarchism a psyop?" Anarchism doesn't have to be a psyop,
2: because. It's deep, it's, it already accepts capitalism's premise, which is that there is no God and that you're God. It thinks that means something else, though. Anarchists think, no, no, there is some world where we can all be individuals together and share. Nope, there isn't. Never was, never can be. You can get together, you can get together and live and share and create a utopian horizon, like a project, but. It will be under the auspices of some sort of transcendent power, concept, that is collectively believed in. Sorry, not negotiable. And the reason they fear that and are horrified by it is because they can only imagine it being imposed from above. But it's not. It's built from below. and You can participate in the building of the thing so that you're not alienated from it. But that requires a sacrifice of short-term libidinal satisfaction, which anarchists cannot accept, which is why they fetishize direct action. That's why in the 1800s, they couldn't stop shooting politicians,
1: because it felt good. They do like black block stuff because it feels good. They
2: decide that getting people fired from Taco Bell for having a Confederate flag on their Facebook page is the same as punching people in the face because it feels good. That is why they don't need to be psyops. Their interests below what their political concepts are, are aligned with capitalism, which is based on short term Pleasure-seeking. Yes, anarchism, the dream these people have, is a reality, but not for us. It is a reality beyond our social frontier that will exist after a process, a social process, that will extend far beyond our deaths. We're all Moses, man. That's the whole point of Moses, is everybody is Moses. When things are, the hit, fit is hitting the shan. The thing that emerges will be after and incorporate
1: you, but cannot be you cannot experience it. And accepting that is part of
2: being a centered and mature person who can clearly see what's in front of them and make decisions based on that. And it's the same thing that you need to do on your own level. You need to understand you're personally not going to get to see everything. You're going to die. Your window on the world, which is everything, will extinguish. But everything will keep going. And you will be part of it. You will always be part of it. Every part of you that you actually value will be part of it. Everything bad, too. It will all be processed and reformed and reborn in different combinations as the dialogical process grinds through the matter and time of the universe. And with that in your heart, you can look at political questions, and instead of making doctrinaire proclamations about what to do, you can listen to your goddamn heart, cheesy and as dumb as that is, listen to your heart, as the song by, was it Pat Benatar,
1: goes. So yeah, anarchisms anarchists are incredible are well-meaning.
2: Everybody's a uh, sincere so I'm not going to ever the one part of the reason that these this the conversations are possible is because since you don't nobody really knows why they believe what they believe, and I'm not just talking about anarchists. I'm talking about everybody of every social structure or of every uh, self-appellation of uh, ideology from every perspective, not just the left. Everybody who goes online to do politics and imagines themselves to be one thing for the most part They believe it because other people that they like believe it, and they want to share a social milieu. They do believe it, but the thing determining their belief is their desire for a social milieu, which there, that's a belief that they cannot differentiate from their political priors because the political priors are built on top
1: of the libidinal urge. And so when they argue... Nobody can actually
2: keep arguing. And the reason everyone decided very quickly after like, politics became identity, and like, especially right after Trump, and like, it got this extra um, ability to invest in it because more people are online, and also uh, a, a, greater con- a, a greater degree of urgency because of Trump's like grotesque figure, people got really hated and decided to argue all the time about what like, the right path forward for was and what the right beliefs are. But all the same time, they're also sorting themselves into social, social groups. I was too. Everybody was. And their arguments are invective and accusations of bad faith. Because that's the only accusation that can have like actual effect. You're going to argue forever because nobody knows why you believe anything. And you will just eventually get bored with it and decide that you don't actually believe what you're claiming you believe. So I don't have to argue on those principles anymore. I can make an accusation against your character, and because the people who d- agree with me don't like you already, they will believe me. And because they think I won, I won. That's why everybody decided that you know what? Uh, actually, debating anything is wrong. Now, I don't like debates either because it's pure, it's pure um, spectacle at this point. But I think the a real reason that people decided debates uh, are pointless is not so much that it's just watching us. Uh, a boxing match, basically. It has the same meaning, politically. Uh, but that it spared them the necessity of being, like, socially expected to offer rebuttals. Because people were in it for the culture. And they still are, and that's what it is. And I'm saying it's inevitable and unavoidable. The question is, what is your political identity separate from that? Separate from that metaverse
1: Identity that you're living with. That web 3.0 thing that we're all in. Because that's the thing, like, yeah, it's pointless to
2: debate people online because people will only, people already have their side picked. so it doesn't matter nothing will be persuade no one will be persuaded and people say like what about a third party observer and the thing is nobody observes this shit at this point until they're at wanting to be entertained by it and they have to be entertained by it by having a rooting interest like the time when people were sorting is over the the, the sides are picked
1: now the thing to remember, I I think,
2: is that even if humanity does get extinguished, as in like the human race ends, and even if you've convinced yourself by looking at the material reality around you that that is inevitable now, that still doesn't free you from the obligation to have a political identity and to do political action because it's part of life. And if you don't do it, you'll feel bad, and you'll have to do something about that bad feeling. And you can either confront it, or you can try to sublimate it. And sublimating it just creates other problems elsewhere. Which is one of the uh, things, the mirroring uh, elements of cap- between capitalism and the human psyche.
0: Is that,
2: For example, there's a big debate about crime now, right? What should we do about crime? harm reduction or uh and like letting the pedal off of the incarceral state uh or accelerating uh penalties and bringing back uh broken door policing and all that broken window policing and all that and of course you know the people who say harm reduction and uh uh leniency they say and also more services they always say and also more services so people aren't poor But the thing is, that's not going to happen. That's no longer politically possible because the pressure to make it happen
1: no longer exists. Leniency is possible, though. And that does create its own problems. And it creates its own political problems that then have to be solved. The other
2: answer, though, crack down on them, crack heads, uh, throw throw the book,
1: that creates its own huge explosion of problems. And those are both things that
2: the state can do. They can choose one of those two paths, but anything else is not going to happen. Any real attack of the root of the problem can't occur. And so... Whether you're on one side or the other, you're participating in politics and thinking you're doing the best thing, but actually only multiplying problems that then require their own solutions that then have problems multiply on them. Just as an individual who refuses to confront their, the source of their discomforts, their source of their pain, and attempts to ignore it, only
1: does things that are, in an objective sense, bad for them. And so you end up getting, like, the, the
2: here's the thing. The thing that's supposed to justify your investment in one side or the other of the broad partisan uh, political festival is that if you're a Republican, the Democrats, they're not going to stop until they've done all the worst nightmare things you can imagine, right? Like imposing uh, Jerry Brown's Zen fascism on the world, mandatory pronouns. Abolish the family. You, know, you, are, you, are, you, you work as the footstool for a, uh, a Guatemalan immigrant. Your job is apologizing to black people. They believe that that is the end goal of, uh, of, of liberalism. And of course, if you're a Democrat, you can look at Republicans and say, oh, MAGA hell is their end goal. They're going to have us all, uh, they're going to be doing gas chambers for minorities, and they're going to be enforcing... Uh, Handmaid's Tale, among those who are considered, you know, racially worthy. And the thing is, is that if you had a situation of like end stage capital crisis where, you know, all of the all of the meat has left the bone and it's just the pure skeleton of coercion, it would probably look like one of those other things. If they were able to accumulate indefinitely, like towards a point, if they took power and held it and continued. But that's not what we get in this country. We get turnismo, ter, uh, drill, turning the dial, uh, the racism dial back and forth, and looking at the audience. Abortions for some, miniature Amer- miniature American flags for others. We have a seaside of power, or rather, I'm sorry, a uh, a tidal gravity within uh, power that filters a really post-political, apolitical process of immiseration through a a cultural filter, a narrative that tries to explain to you why this is happening. And it gives you a, a menagerie of good and bad guys up from the highest levels of power to fellow posters and neighbors. And then you interact with that world instead of the thing that's right in front of you. Meanwhile, by going back and forth, by letting uh, the heat go down so that you don't totally alienate one side or the other from the common project of being American citizens, if you keep them on the hook, things will continue to intensifiably get worse while in the middle people are uh, still on board enough that the lights stay on. And those who aren't on board, they kill themselves through deaths of despair and overdoses, uh, they fall through the cracks or they rise up and get swatted down and that's why I think that if humanity does survive, it will be outside the wire, and we can all ask ourselves where do we want to be relative to the wire where where can we keep our souls relative to the wire? I think most Americans, I know I will admit this, feel comfortable at the end of the day on this side of the wire, given where the wire is now, how far away it is, how little engagement I have on a day-to-day basis with the consequences of it. And the thing is, there's nothing, there's no reason for me to hit myself with a fucking uh, birch branch because of that, or wear a hair shirt. It's the world we live in. It's the context we are fixed within. But things are going to change with time, and you have to keep asking yourself that question. That's, that's where it comes down to, is that the moral obligation is to continue asking yourself where your line is. And what culture war politics does is allow you to extend the line indefinitely. Gives you a frontier to imagine, to justify your continued uh, uh, alle- allegiance to the state. And one of the things that really does, and I think honestly... undermines a lot of this is that since so much of our reality is mediated, it's almost impossible for us to engage in public thought about what actually needs to be done legally. We have freedom of speech, but at the end of the day, thanks to privatized realms of power, if we wanted to talk about what realistically we should do politically if we wanted to feel, and this is the important if, if we wanted to feel like our political actions would have consequences,
1: meaningful consequences, we wouldn't talk about them publicly because they would get us in
2: trouble. And if you see some people on public forums talking about stuff that is illegal and dangerous, it's probably because they're too fucking stupid to know what they're doing, and they're operating off of that that uh, propaganda of the deed boner, that fucking, uh, that agro-orgon erection, just like, yes, fuck it. Of course, most of them are just going to post about it anyway. They're not even going to do anything. But even the transgressive power of posting like that is going to get them, keep them hard.
1: Or they're literally cops and being paid to do it. Because you don't,
2: you don't write a book called How to Blow Up a Pipeline if you're actually going to blow up a pipeline, right?
1: If you were going to blow up a pipeline, you tell some people you know about it. And I don't even think stuff like blowing a pipeline would work. Like,
2: I'm not... One of the reasons that I'm, I've been paralyzed as I am, and I, I assuage myself through these sermons, basically, is that I really don't think that I would feel validated by doing any, like, illegal shit right now. There are no choke points. There's no chinks in the armor that I feel like I could carry forward in something that would be anything other than self-glorifyingly suicidal. And, of course, the fact that I'm fat and happy and comfortable is a big reason for that. And if I didn't have these material conditions, that equation would look a lot different. But I can only be honest about where my... Uh, Instinct is, which is another reason you won't see real uh, organizing towards effective politics online, because the people who uh, have the most time to talk about politics online have
1: the least incentive to engage in dangerous politics. Wait a minute. Somebody says you know how to blow up a pipeline.
2: Does that book actually like tell you how to do it though, or is it, like why you should hypothetically?
1: I don't know. I haven't read it. So I'm just here narrating my political paralysis, basically.
2: And I think that's what we're all doing to some degree, some degree or another, and. Some of us are doing it because, you know, if nothing changes, changes, you'll be materially okay. And that's me, for now. (laughs) But, like, I'm talking now. I mean, reality could smack me in the face any time. But, for now, I can imagine a status quo going forward where I will be okay and I can continue to rationalize my participation in it one way or the other. And at the end of the day, I do feel like, hey, if I'm going to have a job, this one feels good to do. Like, it feels good to do it. Like, obviously, it's, it's nice to be able to, to, to live comfortably at a time when most people increasingly can't. But I do generally feel, I don't feel that guilty about doing it. And I actually enjoy it. Like, it, this time I spend doing it allows me to uh, feel what they said in the Chariots of Fire, uh, God's pleasure.
1: So here I am, at the restaurant
2: at the end of the universe, waiting for my cheese fries with the rest of you. And we're all doing that, and to some lesser degree, all of us, here and otherwise, are acting every day, and those actions are going to gonna be directed by conditions and then our instantaneous understanding of those conditions when they arise, our level of perception. And that is going to be up to all of us to... Home. That's all self, very self, uh, exculpatory. But at the end of the day, I believe God exists. So, I, at a certain point, I lay down my my burden, and that's all. As a as a isolated, uh, soy soy faced uh, bug man, uh, that's as good as I can hope for right now. But you have to accept that you're on a journey, and as I said. Even if human race is wiped out, life will never end. And that's us. So even if it's all going to go away, what are you going to do with the time you have? And feeling like you're helping people is part of that. Feeling like you're expressing love that the universe feels for you and that you have to reciprocate if you're to. Feel any sense of uh, of serenity, calm, uh, centeredness in this tempest that surrounds us?
1: God is a cope. Duh! You fucking God is a cope.
2: The universe is fucking cope, man. What are you talking
1: about? Cope is God. Like, if you're a hardcore materialist, right? You think that if, when you die, your brain just
2: switches off, right? There's nothing after it. There's no uh, seraphim. There's nothing. It's just a cold, mechanical process, right? Well, then there's nothing to be afraid of. But why, then why are you so fucking miserable? And the answer is, is you need something to animate you through life. You need a narrative. You need a story, that story needs a perspective that can't be yours. And that is made up. It's socially constructed. Therefore, a way of coping with being locked in a material box, being locked on rails. Because remember, there is no free will. We are all absolutely determined. All of our actions, determined. No one's ever never, ever been able to... Dispute that, I don't think, in a way that has been convincing to me. We're on rails. The exit has already happened. Everything has already happened. Everything has already happened. But how we feel about it as it happens is in our control. What we do might not be determined, or what we do might be fully determined, but why we do it is determined by us. And that has nothing to do with why we're doing it. Why we're doing it is a chemical process below the level of human consciousness. We make up a story about why we do it. That story can be good or bad, make us feel good or bad. But what good and bad are, are not within us. They're uh, relatively constructed socially. And when I say socially, I mean between all the other stuff in the universe, all the other
1: conscious and unconscious minds of the universe that are also us. So guess what, even if you accept
2: this is all just a material and the world's ending, you still have to cope with that. Okay, you're going to be you're going to uh you're going to die, right? And you believe that that is just the end, turning off turning off a light. End of Sopranos. Which one of the reasons that's one of the best endings ever is because it's one of the only modern uh like psychological portraits that actually is able to embody the real anxiety of modern life, modern spiritual life, where there is no God, there is no supernatural, there is only like electrical impulses, and that is when it just ends, and you never learn anything, and you never know anything, and there's never any conclusion, there's never any sense of putting down a burden, it's just misery, 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 and you never get, and of course, the end itself won't hurt, but thinking about it will hurt. And it'll hurt more and more the longer you accumulate wrongs. You accumulate injuries to the self, spiritually and physically. And then it just ends. And that's why everyone watching that movie and just being horrified by that suspension and that lack of resolution, that's the hell, congratulations! Jake, David Chase actually built modern, secular, western hell for you to live in. Which is just the fear of the thing happening. All right. How are you you're not gonna cope with that? You're going to cope with it one way or another. Even if you use science to like understand it well, uh well, logically, that means that uh there won't be any fear, so there's nothing to be afraid of. That's a that's a fucking prayer, bro. That's cope, dude. And you can't say, yeah, but this is reality I'm confronting. <laughs> You don't fucking know shit, dude.
1: As if cause and effect don't break down at the fucking quantum level. We need a reason to be because we have to seek sustenance
2: we have, we have a we we need a reason to be because we have to act to live and the sensation of being an embodied form with a conscious mind makes us want to in a in a very like grounded way want to continue we get hungry we get thirsty our body becomes unpleasant to be in and to uh, to uh Our body becomes an unpleasant universe. It becomes a shitty place to be. Unless we do something about it, and we know what to do. So we have to choose to do it. So we have to tell us a story to get there. And that is why we're always going to have a God, because there always has to be that embodiment of unity, that embodiment of the fact that the embodiment of unity that quenches the anxiety of existential annihilation that says it's not going to hurt and it's not really the end of anything. And if you act in conscious awareness of that fact, you will do things that are good for you and good for other people. If you have some other cosmology like the twisted God that we've been worshiping ever since uh, the the fucking secret societies and the cabals took over, then it twists your behavior and you end up having to look inward and and say, well, what should I do? And when you look inward to ask, what should I do? The only answer that's going to come up is Satan's
1: voice. Is sin. Because the narrowest self-interest is often in
2: conflict with the best interest of everything else. Not just the other people around you, but the world you live in. Because as I said, there is a fucking dialogue between the review, the natural world and us that we have to deal with. And those early agriculturalists that Grabro talk about, they farmed. And they experienced farming. And they got to the point where they're like, okay, doing this is kind of fun. Doing this is okay. This is kind of a pain in the ass, but it's worth it. This is too much. This isn't worth it. And then decide not to do it. That
1: is a dialogue. But once you have the state enforcing
2: uh, stratified class roles, and especially once you get a state that can conquer people who you do not see as human and put them to work, where they can accumulate all the misery of doing all that extra, all that unpleasant labor, You're no longer getting the signal from the world. You're no longer getting that natural uh feedback. It's all getting absorbed at this by
1: by the base by people who can't communicate to the top so he says. You've argued that we need to cope. Cope is inherent,
2: which is true, but that that isn't the same as arguing that God is real or even necessary. Even if God was the original cope, there's plenty of other kinds. What other kinds are there? What I'm saying is what other kinds of cope are there that aren't self-destructive? And by being self-destructive, I mean make you miserable, make you soul dead, and hurt those people around you.
1: I would like the person who said other kinds to answer that. Because if you say like just watching movies all day, that's bad. That's bad for you.
2: If you say engaging in uh, 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 self-definition through political action, that's we see what happens when people do that in a place where you can't really move that much politically. They whack. They run against the fucking uh, uh, bug zapper, and they hurt the people around them because they're willing to
1: sacrifice. There are human connections on an altar of ideology. Like even Epicureanism
2: premises itself on a serenity that comes from an awareness of harmony. It says that if you aren't seeking release from the awareness of mortality and what it means, then you can pursue a life of pleasure where the pleasures you pursue are moderate, are fleshly, but not overwhelmingly, alienatingly, unbalancedly, asymmetrically fleshly. That are also spiritual, and that the spiritual pleasures balance out the need to overindulge physically. We don't have that. So, it's, so Epicureanism means a mad dash flight to a hedonic treadmill that capitalism provides. It says there's always more consumption at the other end of the rainbow that will allow you to feel whole.
1: And which by pursuing, you literally, we are all literally destroying the earth. Death means nothing to us, is what Epicurus said, and that's
2: correct. Someone who lives willing to die at any moment will behave accordingly. Now, yeah, some of those people are going to kill themselves or commit mass violence acts, but that's because they're traumatized. Into that, if you seek that state, consciously, not be driven there by the misery of the life you live with, where annihilation is preferable to continuation of life, where you reckon with that that spiritual void and try to to proactively deal with it, then living a life with the conscious thought that death is
1: meaningless will allow you to be the, the best version of yourself.
2: And that is why, as I said, Soprano's ending is one of the most perfect pieces of art of the the popular era. It's because it shows you hell under conditions of uh, of pure materialism. Because remember, this is a happy ending in many respects for Tony. He doesn't feel all the other pain. He doesn't have to go to hell and get stabbed for murdering all these people. Like, that's not there. But what is there is, is that he just has to is that you, not he, because remember, he's, just, he's not real, you get to imagine you, that happening to you and imagining that point afterwards. And of course, you won't be experiencing it, but until you do, you can imagine it, and you're agonized and tortured by that thought. That's what's so interesting about Uncut Gems, because Uncut Gems is like a Kabbalistic version of that, where... Howard Ratner is presented as essentially a mystic. He's a Kabbalist. He has determined subconsciously how to escape, human, escape his life uh, at its maximal point, how to live the material existence that he lives uh, in, a, in, a, in a way of maximal pleasure, maximal satisfaction. And what that means is pursuing this, uh, this jackpot, right? Not with the goal of getting it, but of getting it, winning, and then getting killed. Because remember, this movie starts with him getting a colonoscopy. And about a third of the way through, he gets the call, no polyps. But of course, he knows he's going to get him eventually. He runs in my family. a guy who, for whom life can only be uh, enjoyed in the most material way, how the hell is he going to be able to handle being in a fucking hospital bedroom, confronting death? Pursue, through the manipulation of numbers, uh, an encounter with the divine, which is achieving the rapture that his gambling addiction has been all about, and then immediately dying. Boom, done. Seeing the light, ending it. That he is a fucking kabbalist. He is a mystic. That's why the movie starts with. If anybody has ever done mushrooms and closed their eyes, what you see is a bunch of like tubes and tunnels, kind of. At least I have a number of times, and uh, the camera moves through it. And then it comes into his asshole. And then uh he gets shot. The camera goes into the bullet hole in his mouth and his cheek and then re-enters that chamber. Like that's our like we are birthed into this predetermined ride, basically, this fixed structure of events, which is necessary because it's part of everything. Everything is happening everywhere. And this is this is part of what that means. Is your individual consciousness of time on earth. And it's you're on, you're on rails. The only thing you have control over is how you will subjectively experience this feeling. And the spiritual challenge is the idea that you can master this process. This is what Taoism essentially is. The way, the path, is already in front of you. And if you
1: focus enough on it, you can head towards death consciously.
2: So that when you get the Tony Soprano moment, lights aren't turning off, they're turning on. You're not coming to the end destroyed by a consequence of your actions. You're coming to the end on your terms, which means time to encounter the divine. And even if that's not true, a life lived with that belief
1: will be happier than one that is not. And somebody says, rejecting God doesn't mean just sitting and washing
2: material filth and watching Disney movies until you die. I guess this is where we get to the Wittgenstein point. This is where we get to the, 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 the incommensurability here. Because at a certain point, all real disputes are mistranslations and misunderstandings. Because I don't think that's true. But what God is, what I mean by that, is probably not what you do. It has different categories. Or it has different structure. Like, when I, God in my head, the cube that I'm rotating when thinking about the concept is not the same shape as your cube, as your God cube. And that means we're not going to be able to talk about it. And that which we cannot speak of, we must pass over in silence. That
1: seems like a very good place to end it. Okay, hope that made sense. See you on the flippity-flop. Oh, uh,
2: we're going on tour starting next week, so I might not be able to do a stream. Uh, I might be able to do it on Tuesday, but if I don't, I'll have to postpone. But when we get back from
1: tour, we'll be back on the stream. Bye-bye.